downstairs. Let me welcome all of you here and downstairs to the second in the series of six lectures which are part of the celebration of the centennial of Princeton's Graduate School. Uh, five, uh, four more lectures will take place, one next month and then three in the spring. Uh, I'll say no more at this point except to say that there will be a reception following the lecture and uh, question period in Frist Campus Center, and we hope all of you will join us there. It's my pleasure to introduce Professor Kurt Callan, Chair of the Physics Department, uh, who will introduce our speaker. Well, it's my special pleasure to introduce you to Juan Maldacena, uh, the second lecture lecturer in the Frontiers of Knowledge series. It's a special pleasure for me because I'm the chair of the physics department from which he recently graduated. He was my uh, thesis student, although the question of who was whose student was one that was uh, resolved early on in his favor. <laughs> and also because he gives wonderful lectures and I'm sure you're in for a treat. Uh, let me give you the bare bio data before I tell you why Juan is such an appropriate lecturer in a series celebrating the centenary of the graduate school. He was born slightly more than 30 years ago. I don't know exactly how much. He's young enough, so he probably cares for exactitude in, this, in these matters. Um, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, he earned a bachelor's and master's in physics in Argentina and entered the graduate school here in 1992. Uh, everybody who encountered him as a student was immediately convinced that he was something special. He knocked our general exam out of the ballpark in the first time he took it. Uh, and I was quite flattered when he chose me as his PhD thesis advisor. I have to say that I've never met a student who needed less instruction. And I have to say that during the wonderful several years when we worked together, I learned far more from him than he from me. Uh, he graduated in 1996, went to Rutgers as a postdoc for a year, uh, moved to Harvard in 1997 as an associate professor, and was promoted to full professor shortly thereafter. He has begun, despite his youth, to collect honors. He was recently named a MacArthur Fellow, has won the Sackler Prize, and I am sure that many others will follow. Uh, this is, I can assure you, quite a meteoric rise in the academic world, and there's a very good reason for it. Uh, Juan is quite a singularity. He's done more than nearly anybody in recent years to advance the field of string theory, which is one of the core uh, disciplines in theoretical physics. Uh, as a graduate student, he made major contributions to the string theory explanation of black hole entropy and Hawking radiation. His thesis on this topic, uh, which recounts his own magnificent contributions to those subjects and, so to say, recounts the, the background that was contributed by some other people, uh, is a magisterial document that will repay reading years from now. Uh, a year and a half after his PhD, he showed that certain four-dimensional gauge theories, gauge theories is the code word that physicists use to describe theories of things that are generalizations of light, photons. And they're very important because they lie at the heart of the standard model, which is the core theory that we use to describe the physics of elementary particles, fundamental particles. Uh, he showed that certain four-dimensional gauge theories were essentially identical to 
string theory or gravity in a very special curved space in 10 dimensions. This idea that photons and gravitons were in some weird sense the same thing as long as the photons were in four dimensions and the gravitons were in 10 was a truly seminal piece of work. It opened a door into a new field and inspired and enabled a host of new developments. Uh, his work in both areas was surprising, deeply insightful, and incredibly influential. And the agenda of the entire string theory community has been profoundly affected by Maldacena's work in the brief time since he burst on the scene. Uh, since the, in the 30 odd years since I've been observing particle physics, very few people have traced out as spectacular a trajectory from graduate student to world leader in the field of theoretical physics. As an aside, I'm happy to note that most of the people that I can think of in that regard are graduate alumni of this graduate school. Uh, Juan is, is a most fitting choice to speak to you at the beginning of the graduate school's second century. He represents the very best that we've achieved in the first century of our existence, and his career, which is just beginning, is going to stretch out over a sizable fraction of the second century of our existence, and I'm sure he will be setting the tone for the science of the 21st century. The only qualification and regret I have is that at least as things now stand, his wisdom will be dispensed to graduate students of another graduate school than ours, uh, but we're generous at the Princeton Graduate School, and we're happy to help out sister institutions that are in great need. Of <laughs> so one, I believe, will talk to you about what he believes and I believe with him will be one of the key topics of the 21st century science of physics, strings, black holes, and quantum gravity. Thanks. Well, let me thank the organizers for inviting me to give this uh, lecture. It's a pleasure for me to be here, and here in Princeton, where I spent so many interesting years, where I learned so much. Um, and I'll be talking about uh, yeah, strings, black holes, and quantum gravity. But before I start talking about that, I'll have to give you a little background of the kinds of physics that uh, are already well established. And I'll be talking about two areas of physics, um, about particle physics, and which involves quantum mechanics. So this is a part of physics that is well established, and I need to tell you a little bit about it so that uh, it becomes clear what string theory and quantum gravity have to say about that. Uh, then we'll talk about a little bit about relativity, which uh, will tell us, which, taught, well, which uh, implies an interesting relationship between space and time, and the nature of space and time. And also, then I'll be talking about uh, gravity, or the theory of uh, general relativity, which describes how space-time moves. Then, um, after reviewing these uh, basic uh, pillars of physics, I'll uh, tell you that they are inconsistent. They are logically inconsistent. And I'll tell you that there are some uh, processes that uh, we cannot describe with our current theories. So to such processes, the, the first one and the most important one is the origin of the universe. And the second one is uh, some aspects of black holes. Of course, the first one is much more important, but the second one is one in which uh, more progress has been made, so I'll talk more about the second one. 
Then I'll uh, tell you what string theory is. So string theory is a theory that will solve this inconsistency and that will generalize our theories of particle physics and, and gravity. So it will encompass both of those theories, reducing to each of these theories in relevant limits. So I'll tell you about the basic idea and then I'll tell you about, uh, I'll tell you how we describe black holes in string theory. So um, if we ask the question, what are things made of? Um, we could ask this question, if we asked these questions 2,000 years ago, we would have gotten different answers for these three different things, like for a piece of ordinary matter, a chunk of iron, for example, or the sun, uh, fire, a stellar body, or a living organism. We would have gotten different answers for the, people thought they were, they were made of different things. However, we, if I asked the same question today, you would say they are made of molecules, atoms, uh, elementary particles, and all those answers are, are correct. So we think that uh, many things are made of molecules, which in turn are, are made of atoms, and these in turn are made of elementary particles. So an elementary particle is a particle that we cannot divide into a smaller particle. Of course, what's an elementary particle depends on how powerful our analyzing instruments are. So. Um, so in the 1800s, atoms were considered uh, to be elementary particles, sort of the building blocks of matter. Now, uh, then, it was, then it was seen that atoms were made of uh, something else, something smaller, and uh, those smaller things are what we call today elementary particles. And it could very well happen that those elementary particles are made of something else. And we'll see in the course of this lecture that some of the newest ideas in physics are, are that these elementary particles are actually made of smaller things which are called strings. Now, what, what is an atom like? So, an atom consists of a nucleus, which is, uh, which is positively charged, so it's here in the center, and some electrons that are going around the nucleus. Um, the electrons, as far as we know, cannot be divided into anything smaller. So, so far as we know, today, electrons are elementary particles because we can divide it into something smaller. The nucleus, on the other hand, can be di divided into smaller things. Actually, the full force of these nuclear reactions where the nucleus is uh, fused or split, or split uh, give us, for example, the energy of the sun comes from fusing nuclei, so it comes of releasing the energy that is stored in the nuclei. This energy comes from the forces between these different particles that form the nucleus, the protons and the neutrons, and they themselves are actually made of smaller particles, which are called quarks. And these quarks, as far as we know, they are also elementary. As far as we know experimentally, we cannot divide, into, divide them into anything smaller. Now, it could very well be that these particles are actually made of something else, but experimentally, we don't know that. Now, today we have a list of elementary particles. Now, this list uh, comprises the particles we have already mentioned, the electrons, and the quarks, as well as some other particles which are due to, which uh, are responsible for the forces that these particles feel. So the electrons in the, in the atom feel an electric uh, force, and that electric force is due to the exchange of some particles called photons. So all electric forces, and actually these are the forces that are dominant or are responsible for most of the structure of matter that we see, are due to the exchange of photons. And similarly, there are some particles called gluons, which are sort of similar to photons, except that they are responsible for nuclear forces. So it's for the forces within the nucleus. And then there are some other particles. But 
so today in physics we have a list of these elementary particles. So we have the, some complete list. We know their interactions. We know precisely how these particles interact, interact with each other. We have the theories describing those interactions. And all matter that we see is made of these particles. So, and that includes the matter that we see around us. That includes, uh, well, this desk, uh, the chairs, the air around us, the light that comes uh, through your eyes, etc. So all that is made out of these elementary particles. <coughs> it includes living organisms, as well as the matter we see in distant galaxies. So the matter in distant parts of the universe still is made, as far as we understand, out of, this, out of these particles. So it's made. Now, um, how, how do we make matter out of these particles? So how is it that uh, out of all these particles, we have solid things like this table, and we have uh, structures uh, such as the structures we see? Now, the way uh, that the atom works, so we said the atom has a nucleus, and the atom has electrons going around the nucleus, and there is an attractive force between the nucleus and the electron, because they have opposite electric charges, so they tend to attract each other. And based on our intuition of classical physics, we would, of classical mechanics, we would think that uh, this situation is very similar to the situation we have in the solar system, where we have the sun and the earth, and they both, both attract, the, th the sun attracts the earth, and that makes the earth go around the sun. So we would think we would make a picture of the atom as a small solar system. So that's what, what we would expect from classical physics. And that's the picture people suggested in the late 1800s for the atom. However, there is a problem with that. And the problem is that, uh, so this picture is not right, and the problem is that a moving electron uh, would emit electromagnetic radiation. So um, this effect, so for example, this is the way your cell phones work. So if you speak over a cell phone, uh, the electrons in the antenna will start moving and they will emit uh, electromagnetic waves, radio waves, that, uh, and then process and so on. And so these electrons similarly would emit electromagnetic radiation. And through the emission of this radiation, it would lose energy the same way the cell phone, that's the reason why the cell phone needs a battery essentially, so it will lose some energy. And um, after losing this energy, it will start, fall, well, it will fall into the nucleus. Um, it will fall into the nucleus here, and the atom would collapse in a fraction of a second. So that's why this picture is not right. I mean, we know that matter lasts longer than that. Now, in order to solve this problem, this problem was solved when quantum mechanics was discovered. So quantum mechanics was a theory that was discovered during uh, the beginning of the century, so the beginning of the 1900s. And quantum mechanics is a new set of rules uh, that are necessary in order to describe the motion of small things. So quantum mechanics is crucial for describing small things such as molecules, atoms, and elementary particles. Like all these particles that we've been talking about that make matter are governed and they move according to, the roles of, according to the rules of quantum mechanics. So classical mechanics is not good enough, so we need quantum mechanics. And quantum mechanics is crucial for understanding 
most of the properties of matter. Almost all the properties of matter uh, make uh, crucial use of quantum mechanics. So in order to, to understand why we don't fall through the floor and so on, we need to uh, know quantum mechanics. So the very simple uh, aspect about the stability of matter, the fact that matter lasts, lasts longer than a fraction of a second, needs quantum mechanics. Um, now one of the uh, things that quantum mechanics says, postulates, is that particles such as, for example, the electron, cannot have uh, well-defined positions and velocities. So the picture of the atom, according to quantum mechanics, is a little more like this. So um, we cannot say exactly where the electron is or exactly which orbit the electron is following, but we can only give the probability of finding the electron somewhere. So the electron is, so this uh, diagram just represents the fact that the probability of finding the electron close to the nucleus is bigger than the probability of finding the electron further away. Um, and so when we make a measurement, we can, we can make a measurement and suddenly find the electron here, and then we repeat the measurement with the same uh, atom and we find the electron over here and so on. And each time we reproduce the, the experiment, we do the experiment with the same, exactly the same atom, we measure the electron in different places. So what this implies is that some things are fuzzy. So there is some intrinsic, intrinsic fuzziness to nature, um, such as we cannot say exactly where the electron, what the electron is doing. So we describe, uh, there is a precise way of describing this fuzziness, and that's what quantum mechanics does. So quantum mechanics is a whole uh, set of rules, of mathematical rules, which enable us to describe this physical situation. One of the things uh, quantum mechanics implies, will imply after you consider the situation of the atomic system, is that the electron has a lowest energy state. So if you have a, a quantum electron, it can radiate some energy, but after, after a while it will follow to its lowest energy state and it cannot decay any further. And this very simple, this fact is responsible for the stability of matter. So this fact that um, there is a lowest energy state in quantum mechanics. So what I want to stress is that quantum mechanics is essential for understanding matter. Okay, so uh, we've seen so far how uh, matter is made. So matter is made of these particles that interact obeying the laws of quantum mechanics. So now let's uh, talk about something slightly different, which is the relationship between space and time. So this uh, relationship is uh, known as uh, relativity or special relativity. What relativity says is that two observers which are moving with respect to each other should measure exactly the same physics. So if you have some observer here and you have some other observer which is moving with constant velocity relative to the first observer, then these two observers should measure exactly the same laws of physics, exactly the same, uh, exactly the same. If they do experiments confined to uh, their, their labs, let's say. Um, now in particular, they should measure the same speed of light so also one of the principles of relativity is the constancy of the speed of light. The speed of light is the same, measured by uh, any of these two observers. And, and that implies that time fall, flows differently for different observers. So what happens is that, uh, so suppose that you have the following situation. Suppose you, have, you are here, you are the first observer here, 
the pink observer, and there is a second observer, the yellow observer, which is moving at constant velocity relative to you. Let's suppose at some instant of time you synchronize, you synchronize your chronometers in such a way you put your, both, both of your chronometers to zero, and then you wait for half an hour. So you wait for half an hour, then the second observer will have moved all the way here, and if you ask him or her what time uh, this other second observer is measuring, he would tell you that he or she has measured a smaller amount of time, smaller than half an hour. And in this example, I've chosen 15 minutes. So this uh, time, how big the time difference is depends on how close you are moving, so this observer is moving relative to the space of light, to the velocity of light. So if it's moving very close to the velocity of light, you could have a situation like this. If it's moving at ordinary velocities, like the ordinary velocities at which we move, which are much smaller than the velocity of light, then you don't, you don't notice this effect if you have a normal wrist watch. If you have an atomic clock, you would measure this effect. You would be able to actually see this effect. Um, so when you do measurements with better precision, you are able to see this, uh, this effect. Similarly, this, this uh, so-called time dilation effect is seen every day in particle accelerators where uh, when one has particles that have some that are unstable and decay, um, they live for a finite amount of time, one sees that if one accelerates that particle and one makes it move at very high velocities, then this particle will live longer. So time flo flows more slowly for moving objects. So what this is telling us is that time and space are uh, very intimately related, and so that's why uh, physicists talk about space time, space time as a single entity, so both space and time. That's why they say space time is four dimensional because it has three spatial dimensions. Those are, these are the three spatial dimensions that we are used with, you were used to, plus the time dimension. Um, one other principle of relativity is that no information can travel faster than the speed of light. So speed of light is the absolute limit for the transmission of information. And so that's a basic principle of physics. And experimentally has never been, well, people have never seen violation of these principles. Um, now then we will talk, now we will talk about uh, second, uh, another aspect of nature, which is uh, the theory of gravity. So Newton uh, discovered the theory of gravity uh, many centuries ago, and he managed to explain, uh, to predict, predict and explain the motions of the, the planets around the sun using this very simple theory. So what Newton postulated is the existence of a force, of a gravitational force, which acts at a distance, and this gravitational force on a body is proportional to the masses of the body and is directed in the direction of the second body, okay? So it's directed in the line joining, along the line joining the two bodies. Now, so this uh, theory of gravity works very well to describe uh, the motions of the planet, but um, it's not consistent with relativity, as we said before. And the reason it's not consistent is the following. So imagine the following thought experiment. So suppose you, um, suppose this is some object, let's say the sun, and this is second object, let's say the earth. So here on the earth we see a gravitational force that is directed towards the sun. Now let's suppose we are suddenly, so suppose we suddenly move the sun. 
So we suddenly move the sun according to Newton's theory, the force would immediately change because the force is directed always along the line joining the two bodies. However, um, according to relativity, the information that the sun has moved cannot travel faster than the speed of light. So according to relativity, if we were to move the sun, the force has to stay pointing in the direction it was pointing before for some time, which is the time it would take light to go from here to here. That's around eight minutes for the sun, the distance. That's the time it takes this, the light, that's the time it takes light to go from the sun to the earth. And then after that time, it, the force can uh, adjust to its new position. So that's, what, that's roughly what it should happen according to relativity. So this force should take some time to change. So this, is a, this logical inconsistency with uh, relativity was uh, solved by Einstein when he invented the, and discovered the theory of general relativity. He also managed to explain with this theory why the gravitational force is proportional to the mass. So what Einstein postulated is that space, space-time can be curved. So space-time is not just simply flat, but it can be curved. And space-time can change its shape, and it's something dynamical. Now, in order to explain what these uh, words mean, let's uh, consider the following analogy. So in Newton's theory, we have a rigid space-time where particles move. Now, the analogy is the following. So think of a billiard table where we have billiard balls that are moving around, and these billiard balls can uh, bounce off each other, or they could interact with long-range forces with each other, and so on. But the billiard table is completely rigid. The billiard table is not, doesn't move at all. So the particles move and collide with each other, but the billiard, tables, the billiard table does not move. Now, in Einstein theory, so the modification that going from Newton's theory to Einstein theory would be analogous to the, doing the following. So you replace the billiard table by an, elastic, by an elastic membrane. So a rubber sheet, let's say, that is elastic, and therefore when we put a billiard ball there, the billiard ball would deform the rubber sheet, and so now um, the motions of these balls will also be affected by the local shape of this rubber sheet. So that's, uh, that's the analogy. Um, so the idea is that the way you explain gravitational forces with uh, Einstein's theory is the following. You, when you put a big mass, so let's say, well, actually any mass, but this, if you put a mass in your space-time, the mass will deform space-time around it. It will make it, it will curve space-time around it. And then the motion of a second mass will be directed along the line that is closest to a straight line. In this, uh, in, it will be the line with um, shortest length uh, in this, in this space-time. Uh, and that would be the trajectory that the second mass would follow. Let's say the trajectory of the Earth around the Sun is the line of shortest uh, distance in uh, this curved space-time that the Sun is producing. So, and space-time also uh, has its own dynamics, so space-time can oscillate even in the absence of masses. Space-time can oscillate, uh, in this, so in this rubber sheet analogy, so if we have this uh, billiard table that we replace by an elastic membrane, the elastic membrane itself can oscillate, and there can be waves 
propagating through this elastic membrane. These are waves, which are so-called gravitational waves, which, um, well, these are waves that are predicted by the theory. What uh, they are is some deformations of space-time, and these deformations of space-time can travel along space-time, and they travel at the speed of light. So gravitational waves have been measured indirectly through experiments performed here at Princeton, and there are uh, and two Nobel Prizes were awarded to that, to uh, Taylor and Hughes. And, um, and now there are two major experiments underway. So there are, uh, there are a couple of obs observatories that are being constructed here in the US to detect gravitational waves directly. Her, they are prediction uh, of Einstein's theory, and from, we'll assume that uh, they will exist. Um, so these are the laws of physics as we know them today. So physics is based on interacting particles which obeys, obey the laws of quantum mechanics, and these, these interacting particles are propagating in a curved spacetime. And the fact that spacetime is curved is related to the existence of gravity, to the existence of gravitational force. So you explain all other forces, like the electromagnetic force and nuclear forces, in terms of these interacting particles, but you explain uh, gravity in terms of the curved spacetime. And all exp any, exp any explanation of a natural phenomenon goes back to these basic laws. So all, all of uh, physics essentially goes back if, if you ask uh, more and more ma microscopic questions, you go, they always, uh, these the explanations go back to these basic laws. So most of physics consists in approximating these basic laws to the situation of interest. And of course, doing these approximations is not something easy, it's extremely difficult, and that's why most of physicists actually work in this area. And it's very difficult because you are dealing with a large number of particles with, which are all interacting with each other. Um, and so you have uh, molecules, which and the interactions among molecules uh, are studied by chemists, and you can build very complex uh, materials, and uh, also this is a hard science, it's a very difficult science to build all these materials, and well, most difficult is to understand uh, how molecular biology works, how biology works. But all of this essentially goes back to the interactions of these particles. These two theories, uh, these two basic theories have been tested to unprecedented accuracy. So what I mean by this is that there are experiments uh, that you can do, there are measurements you can do, which you can, you can get an amazing precision in doing the experiment, and you can independently calculate using the theory the results of these experiments, and the two, the experimental result and the prediction um, completely agrees. So you can predict on paper what the result of an experiment is, and these experiments involve measuring quantities to an amazing number of decimals, like seven and eight decimals, and then you can actually compute on paper, what, or with a computer, what the result is according to these theories, and they agree. Um, now you can ask the questions, therefore, whether these are all the laws of physics, and well, maybe that's uh, all there is, and you can also ask whether they can describe any experiment that we can imagine or any experiment or any physical situation that has already occurred in the universe. And the answer to these two questions is no. So we know this cannot be all the laws because they are logically inconsistent. So these two basic pillars of physics are logically inconsistent. By logically, I mean mathematically inconsistent. 
mathematics is sort of an extension of logic. Um, and the problem arises from trying to put together quantum mechanics and gravity. So the problem is to understand how these two different theories of physics can be uh, put together. And the basic problem arises from the following fact. In order to formulate these theories of quantum mechanics, in order to have this very well-defined description of the interacting particles and so on, you need to have a definite fixed space-time where particles propagate. You need to fix your space-time and then you have particles propagating these fuzzy particles that propagate over uh, that space-time. Now, if you think about Einstein theory, so Einstein theory says that space-time is something dynamical, something analogous to this rubber sheet, and as anything that is dynamical, it, in quantum mechanics, it cannot have a very a definite position or a definite shape. So it can have, we should have a whole probability distribution of having different shapes. So space-time at the same time should have uh, many different shapes, and when we do measurements, we would measure different shapes for space-time, uh, and we should be able to describe that. And we, we really, it's very hard to do that. So the idea is that if you look at space-time, if you look at space-time at very long distances, then you see that it's almost rigid, and well, it can move, but it always has a well-defined shape. But when you look at it at very short distances, then when you start doing different measurements in the same region of space-time, you, you, you repeat the measurements and you see different shapes for space-time. So space-time has sort of like a random structure at very short distances. That's what you would expect. So this has not been measured directly yet, but that's what you would expect according to the laws of quantum mechanics. And the question is how to describe this. So in order just to frame the problem slightly, I'll rephrase the problem. So up till uh, the 1900s, before the 1900s, all physicists thought that the way nature works is that they, every, we have particles that obey the laws of classical mechanics and these particles move in a fixed space-time. So we have a fixed space-time and particles move there, they bounce off each other, they interact with each other, and they thought all physicists had to do was to find the interaction laws, how these particles interact with each other. And then we would be able to predict any, the outcome of any experiment or we would solve, in principle, any problem. So this is the framework in which these uh, physicists worked. So pe people try to uh, find the appropriate theory for these particles that would describe the results of their experiments. Now this situation started to, um, to have some problems in the beginning of the 1900s, and one departure was uh, that people realized that they had to modify the laws of classical mechanics and replace them by the laws of quantum mechanics. And so during that period, quantum particle physics uh, was born, which says that we have part fuzzy particles moving in a fixed space-time. So we have these quantum objects that move in a space-time that has a definite shape. And well, the theory of quantum particle physics was developed from these dates, and here I chose some arbitrary date, but it was developed all the way to uh, the 70s, 80s, where the current uh, model was, has, well, was formulated with current form, so new particles were discovered and so on, so the whole list of particles uh, was essentially known in the, um, in the 80s, and some of these particles have been discovered, and there is one particle in the list that hasn't been discovered yet. But anyway, so this, uh, we have this theory of quantum interacting quantum particle, particles, and that's how we describe matter. 
Another departure from the idea of classical mechanics was the discovery that Einstein made that space-time is not rigid, but it can move. So according to general relativity, we have uh, particles, classical particles, moving on a moving space-time. So space-time can move itself. And so these are two different departures from classical mechanics, but and I've said these two different departures are not, um, these two different changes to classical mechanics are not consistent with each other. So what um, the goal is here is to try to find a theory which uh, encompasses both of these changes, which accounts for both of these changes. And this new theory is, con is called quantum gravity. So quantum gravity is any theory that manages to solve this problem. And this problem was recognized early on in the 1900s, maybe in the 1930s already, but not much progress was made, uh, was made until the 1970s when a theory called string theory uh, appeared. And so according to quantum gravity, and well, these developments are still ongoing, and quantum in quantum gravity, space-time does not have a definite shape, but it's some, somewhat fuzzy because it has this probabilistic aspect to it. And the goal of quantum gravity is to understand how to describe these fuzzy objects, which are the particles, moving in the fuzzy space-time, and how to describe this mathematically in a logically consistent way. Um, and hopefully, uh, nature will have chosen uh, this to be the theory, as it has happened in previous cases. I remind you that general relativity appeared out of solving a logical inconsistency, and then it turned out that nature had actually chosen that way of solving the inconsistency. Um, now, you might think that there might be different ways of, cho of doing quantum gravity, but actually only one, essentially one way is known of doing quantum gravity. Um, now, it's very, uh, something I should mention from the very beginning is that it's very hard to do experiments where gravity and quantum mechanics are both important. So, um, and the reason for that is that quantum effects are important for small things, like atoms, like elementary particles, very small, tiny things. While gravity is important for heavy things, like the sun, things that are really heavy. But most objects that we encounter in nature are either small and light, or they are large and heavy. So if they are small and light, then we, quantum mechanics will be important because they are small, but gravity will not be very important because they are very light. On the other hand, um, objects that are heavy are also large, so when gravity is important, quantum mechanics can be neglected. And these are the objects that nature has uh, provided for us. And so to the accuracy of today's experiment, we can always neglect one, one effect or the other. And these are the typical objects with which we can do experiments. Now, presumably, we could uh, build an ac a particle accelerator, which is large enough, so that uh, we can make um, a particle that is both uh, small and heavy, and that's uh, theoretically possible, and so then we would need to face quantum gravity. But when is also quantum gravity important? Now, there is a moment when it was important, which is the early instance of the Big Bang, and if we want to understand nature, we need to explain this. So it's, and quantum gravity will be crucial for this. 
I'm going to explain this a bit better in a second. And it will also be important for explaining some aspects of black holes. So what is this uh, Big Bang Theory? So if you, people have made observations of distant galaxies, and what we see is that distant galaxies are moving away from us. And so that's explained by saying that the universe is expanding, so space-time, we said, is uh, dynamical and can change. So in this analogy of the rubber sheet, it would be similar to having a balloon that we are inflating. So it's a balloon that is being inflated, so there is more and more space as time progresses. Um, so if we go, go back in time, uh, the whole universe we see, so the whole observable universe was smaller and smaller and smaller. And if we go back in time enough, so around, if we go back in time 15 uh, billion years, then the whole universe, uh, the whole observable universe, would have shrunk to a microscopic distance. And this is the object that is small and heavy by excellence. So this is the whole universe. It's really heavy. And it was shrunk to microscopic distance. So here, you certainly will need quantum gravity. And one asks, well, what happened here? How do we describe this process? And cosmologists have studied uh, the whole evolution of the universe, and they can tell us very well what happened from the early instance, for the, from the first few seconds after this uh, initial Big Bang, up till now. And they, there are various, th so there is, a mo it's, there is a model that explains many of the features we see, so a very experimentally verified model that tells you um, how the universe evolved from this point. But they need to assume some initial conditions. And so what happened before that, it uh, cannot be described. And we cannot understand this with the current laws of physics. Our current equations just fail, are not logically consistent, and in an important way, when we are dealing with this situation. And this is really the most important question in cosmology. What happened in this very beginning? How did time and the universe first started? So this is uh, the problem, and I would say this is the most important problem that we would like to address using string theory. Now, the theory has not been developed enough to address this problem, but I leave it as a general motivation uh, for us to think about. Now, um, the second problem where quantum gravity is important is in the problem of describing black holes. So black holes form when you concentrate a large amount of mass in a small region. Um, so what happens is that uh, the gravitational attraction is so, so big that this matter collapses and forms a black hole. So what is a black hole? So a black hole has two important parts. One is uh, a central point called the singularity, uh, where we have very strong gravity. So the gravity is very strong, and certainly at this point, quantum effects will be important. And if you get into a singularity, you are teared down to pieces. Okay. Um, now, then it has a horizon, which is uh, a surface that surrounds the singularity. This is just an imaginary surface. And what this horizon does, it separates the points from which you will surely fall into a singularity from, when the, po from the points where you can escape away. Okay. So if you are outside the horizon, then uh, what you see outside is very much the same as what you see outside any gravitating body, so uh, like what you see around the sun. So you are attracted to the sun, but you will not necessarily fall into the sun. You can be orbiting the sun. You can have a rocket and move away from the sun, and so on. But 
if you have a black hole and you're just uh, moving this direction, you cross this horizon, there's nothing special about the horizon when you cross it, but if you cross it, then no matter how powerful your rocket is, you'll never be able to escape outside and you will be crashed into the singularity. Um, in our universe, the black holes, uh, we understand that some black holes can form and the smallest black holes, black holes that can form that we understand uh, pretty well how they, they form, are black holes which result from heavy stars which collapse. These heavy stars should, be, uh, should have a mass which is a few times the mass of the sun, and then these stars, after they burn all their fuel, they start collapsing, and eventually they, uh, they collapse into black holes. And those black holes have, have a horizon radius, so the size of this region is roughly one kilometer, or let's say one mile, roughly. Um, the, Outside observer, so I said quantum gravity is very important here, but if you are sitting outside the black hole, the quantum effects are, are very small. However, there are some quantum effects. And one surprising aspect of these quantum effects, the effects of quantum mechanics, is that uh, some, so we said before that all mass that gets into the black hole can never escape, and that's okay according to the classical theory of relativity, general relativity. However, when you mix relativity and quantum mechanics, you find that there can be radiation. This radiation is called Hawking radiation. And so there can be radiation, and there is this radiation that is being emitted from black holes, and black holes lose its mass in this way. Now, this is a radiation that has been predicted out of the base, on theoretical basis. It has not been observed in the black holes we see in the sky, and the reason it has not been observed is that um, that this radiation is much weaker than other kinds of radiation that we receive from the black hole. So it's, this radiation is overwhelmed by other kinds of radiation that are uh, flowing out of the black hole, that are being emitted by the, the particles that are still falling into the black hole. So the black holes that we see in the universe are in the process of formation. They are sucking in matter that was uh, around the star that is being collapsing, and that matter is emitting emitting radiation, and that's why we can see uh, the black holes. Um, now, the existence of this radiation leads to uh, a paradox called the information loss paradox. So imagine the following uh, thought experiment. So a black hole forms, and it can form in many different ways by collapsing different kinds of matter in many different ways. Then the black hole, after it has, all the matter has fallen into the black hole, will, emit, will start emitting radiation. This, uh, this, this radiation is thermal, sort of like the radiation coming from a light bulb, so like the radiation coming from a radiator, so the, the heating radiator. And this uh, radiation will start uh, flowing out of the black hole, and the black hole will start losing its mass, and eventually we are left with nothing. So that's what uh, is predicted according to an approximate treatment. An appro so from the point of view of the outside observer, there are small quantum effects which are responsible for this radiation. The black hole loses its mass very, very slowly. And the paradox is that what comes out seems to be independent of what went in. So the, the kind of radiation we get coming out of black holes is independent of the kind of matter that formed the black hole. Um, now, uh, in a theory of quantum mechanics, so in any quantum theory, we are always able to predict what comes out. So what comes out is always dependent on what went in. 
So and in quantum mechanics, we always have that. So if we have a theory of quantum gravity, we should be able to see, to say what comes out of black holes. And string theory, which is a theory of quantum gravity, will resolve this paradox. And I'll try to give a flavor of how it does that. So what is string theory? So string theory is a theory under construction. So it's a theory that's been uh, going construction since the 70s. Um, its main, one of the main virtues is that it puts together quantum mechanics and gravity, so it manages to solve this contradiction. Another important virtue is that it gives uh, a unified description of all interactions, so the gravitational interaction, the electromagnetic interaction, the nuclear forces, and so on. And one virtue we'll talk about here is that it explains some aspects of black holes. So the basic idea in string theory is that instead of having particles, point particles, uh, to describe physics, we have little tiny strings. So strings are closed loops, and the string is one-dimensional, while the particles that were the particles of particle physics are just points. They are zero-dimensional. Um, these strings can oscillate. And the same string, so all the strings are identical, and the same string can oscillate in many different ways. And so depending on the way it oscillates, it can be a graviton. So a graviton is a string oscillating in one very particular way. So it's sort of the, so the string, as it oscillates more and more, it has more and more energy. So it has more and more mass. So if a string is oscillating with the minimum amount of possible uh, energy, the possible energy, um, then it's a graviton. Now a graviton is the particle that um, mediates these gravitational interactions, represents sort of the quantum of gravitational wave. So when you have a gravitational wave in quantum mechanics, it can carry energies which are quantized. And if it's carrying the minimum amount of energy, then we say it's a graviton. Uh, if it's oscillating in a different way, it could be an electron. And if it's oscillating in yet different ways, it would be, there would be other particles. So depending on the way the string oscillates, we get different particles. Um, the size of the string is uh, going to be smaller, should be smaller than the smallest distance we can see today. And that's just because we haven't seen strings yet. But, uh, <laughs> Um, so they, they, we could see them in the next particle accelerator, or maybe it could take a long time till we see them directly. Now, strings in, in string interactions are very simple and completely universal, so any interaction proceeds as follows. So we have two strings, and the strings uh, touch, then they turn into a bigger string, and then they can separate again, or they can stay joined if you want. Now, this very simple picture gives rise to well-defined mathematical rules. And these mathematical rules lead to a consistent theory. So, um, and the virtue of these rules is that it can unify all interactions, such as the electromagnetic interaction, the strong interaction, the weak interaction. So the strong interaction is interaction due to nuclear forces. This is the interaction due to radioactive decays. And this is the gravity interaction we have uh, seen before. Um, now, one interesting aspect of string theory is that string theory is only consistent in 10 dimensions, 10 or 11 dimensions. So there were first 10, and then it was discovered that they, in some situations, there could actually be 11. 
and that the concept of dimensionality is not always well defined. But to first approximation, we should say that string here is defined in 10 dimensions. And however, uh, we said that we only experience four dimensions, so the three spatial dimensions and time. And the idea is that these um, four dimensions, out of these four dimensions, out of these 10 dimensions, four are large and six are very small. Six are like a small, tiny uh, box. So in order to understand that, so let's uh, make the following analogy. Suppose, um, suppose you had a pipe. So the surface of the pipe is two-dimensional. So it has one dimension along the pipe, and then one circular uh, small dimension. So if you, if you suppose you, you can have a particle that moves on the surface of this pipe, and this particle can move in two dimensions. Now suppose we see this pipe from very far away. So from very far away, we only see the direction along the pipe, and we, don't, uh, we are not able to resolve the direction around the pipe. And so the motion of this particle can be just described in terms of how it's moving along this dimension. And we don't really see how it's moving in the other direction. But if we were able to resolve, um, to blow up this region, we would see all the dimensions. Similarly, the idea is that we were to look at particles at very short distances with powerful microscopes, and the powerful microscopes are the particle accelerators, then we would see that particles would actually start moving in six dimensions. In 10 dimensions, sorry, they can move in these six extra dimensions and therefore they would move in 10 dimensions. Okay, so let's go back to black holes. So how do we describe black holes in string theory? Now, the, your first impression would be uh, to say, since I said that matter, it's uh, made out of strings, so instead of particles, we have strings oscillating in different ways. So if we put lots of matter together, we have lots of strings together. So a black hole should uh, be thought of as a set of interacting strings. And that's essentially what it is, except that it's very difficult to calculate in that picture. It's very difficult to, to understand how many interacting strings are, what they are doing. Um, now the way um, black holes are described is to go to a so-called dual description. So dual means um, different. Um, so suppose you have the black hole. So the way you think about this dual description is the following. You draw an imaginary surface around the black hole. Okay. Um, and then you replace everything that is inside, including the black hole. There could be other particles inside, or this, this description works for anything that we have inside, including black holes. But so you replace everything that is inside by a theory of particles that lives on the surface outside. Okay. So the, this theory on the surface is going to describe everything that happens here in the interior. So the idea is that uh, quantum gravity, which uh, is string theory, in the interior of some region, so here we have a region, um, and quantum gravity here in the interior is the same as a theory of interacting particles on the surface of that region. Uh, so in the surface that bounds this region. So, uh, for example, if we have empty space-time, then uh, empty space-time is the same as the theory of particles in the lowest energy state. The lowest energy state for a theory of particles is to have no particles. Now, suppose we have a graviton in the interior, some gravitational wave which is moving here in this region. Then that can be described by some particles that are moving here on the surface that bounds that region. 
And similarly, if we have more and more gravitons, if we have different particles like electrons and all kinds of particles, we can describe them in terms of these particles moving on the surface. Um, similarly, if we have a black hole, then a black hole will be a large number of interacting particles moving on the surface, a huge number of interacting particles in the surface. And the advantage of this description is that quantum gravity, which I said was something mysterious because you had to describe a moving space-time, a quantum space-time with many different space-times at, at the same time, becomes equivalent to something simpler because it becomes equivalent to a theory of interacting particles. And we understand theories of interacting particles much better. Um, as the theories that are currently used to describe physics are theories of interacting particles, and so we can understand them better. We know they make logical sense. We know that uh, they are mathematically well-defined, and this we had some doubts about, but now we see it's the same as this, um, this other theory. Um, and actually, this relationship can be used in two ways, because uh, some calculations that are hard to do here are easy to do in this description, and vice versa. Um, so this is uh, the kind of relationship that uh, many physicists have been exploring recently, and uh, it was done by work done, um, well, by me, by people here in Princeton, uh, like Ed Witten, Igor Klebanov, uh, Steve Gabser, uh, Polyakov. They all worked in developing uh, this picture. Now, this description works better in space-times that have a natural boundary. And these space-times are space-times which are negatively curved. So these negatively curved space-times are called hyperbolic space-times. Now, in order to understand what that is, well, first think about the sphere. So the sphere is the simplest positively curved space-time. So the hyperbolic space is roughly the opposite of a sphere. So, um, so it has negative curvature. Um, now, if you think about that space-time, spa that space-times look, look essentially like a cylinder where um, you are sitting here in the center of a cylinder. You can be moving around. Time goes in this direction. And then um, you have a sphere here at infinity, which is at the boundary of your space-time. Somehow there is a natural boundary, it's a natural end to space-time um, here. And this boundary, so here in this picture, would be a circle if it is a three-dimensional cylinder. But in our space-time, it would be a two-dimensional sphere. So it would be a sphere at the boundary. And uh, we have the interior, and time flows in this direction. Now, so if we have a particle at rest, or we have a black hole or anything that is moving here, so in time, that's sitting here at the center, and is therefore moving in time, um, then that becomes equivalent to uh, some particles that live on this surface here at infinity. And the, the, in this context, this relationship can be perfectly well-defined, mathematically well-defined. Now, this relationship between the interior and the boundary has been called holography because it's analogous to, uh, to the way, so it's called gravitational holography because it's similar to, it's analogous to optical holography. Now, a hologram is a two-dimensional surface, very much like a photographic plate, except that information is stored in a different way. And when you illuminate a hologram, then you see a three-dimensional object. So what you see from here is not 
two-dimensional picture of an object, but you actually see the full three-dimensional object. And when you start moving around, the object moves around in the same way that it moves around when you look at the normal three-dimensional object. And so the idea is that the theory of the boundary encodes all the information uh, about the, the interior in this holographic way. Um, so here, the theory of the boundary is encoding the information about the interior of space-time in the same way that the hologram is uh, encoding the, the, the image of the three-dimensional object. Um, so let me summarize where we stand now in the study of string theory. Um, in the 70s, uh, string theory was born as a theory of subnuclear forces, as a theory uh, describing what happened with protons and particles similar to protons that are inside the nucleus. Uh, that was the initial uh, reason why string theory was made. But then uh, people realized that it actually was not very useful for that, but it was useful for describing gravity. They'd always describe gravity. And so they stumbled upon this idea, and then they started exploring it. Now, this time, very few people uh, studied string theory. There were just very few in, in the world that uh, studied string theory in the 70s. Uh, Sean Schwartz and Michael Green were among them. And then in the 80s, uh, string theory passed very stringent consistency tests that made the theory suitable as a theory that describes all interactions. So describing the unified interactions, like intera the strong interactions, weak interactions, and so on. It had features that were similar to the features that appear in the, feature in the theory of weak interactions. Um, and then more people started working on it. This uh, was a time where the, well, here Princeton, uh, there were many people from Princeton that worked in this area, and Princeton was the, well, was the leader in the field of string theory. And most people that worked uh, in string theory, well, many people working in string theory passed through Princeton. Um, and well, also in the 90s. And in the 90s, many interesting results were obtained. And these results were, had the favor of these dual descriptions. So this, this way of describing string theory in many different ways. So alternative descriptions of the same theory. And so it was realized that you had to go beyond strings. You had to uh, study things called higher, higher dimensional brains. Um, so in 10 dimensions, you, have, you can have a whole kinds of brains of two dimensions, like membranes and brains of higher dimensions that are moving around. And many of these results were many of these dual descriptions and what I discussed before were based on uh, studying these brains. Um, so. Now, what do we uh, expect for the future? So I've glossed over many interesting, I, there are many other applications of string theory for describing other physical problems. This lecture could have been only about the unification aspect of string theory, how it describes the different particles, um, and, um, and so on. So what do we uh, hope for the future? Now, we expect to find more explorations of these uh, dual descriptions, of descriptions of string theory where uh, space-time uh, arises dynamically. Um, and the most important problem that we have before us, that is in the minds of people working in the field, is to describe uh, cosmological space-times. So space-times that change uh, in time, like expanding universes. 
So we understand pretty well how to describe string theory on a flat spacetime or string theory on this negatively curved spacetimes as we discussed before, but we don't understand very well how to uh, describe string theory on this kind of spacetimes so on expanding universes. Now, one of the important lessons from the recent work was that we could use these dual descriptions where spacetime arises dynamically. So I said that it was hard to describe a theory where spacetime was fuzzy, where we had different shapes of different space, different spacetimes all coexisting at the same time, as we should somehow have in a quantum theory. And the way we avoid that in these dual descriptions is that spacetime is completely gone from the picture. And so you replace it by a theory of particles at the boundary of that spacetime. So what becomes important is the boundary, but the interior arises from the interactions of these particles. So you build spacetime out of these particles in roughly a similar way, though not the same, to the way you build uh, a solid out of interacting particles. Um, so the, the difference between describing solid, a solid as interacting particles and this description of spacetime is that in order to describe a solid in terms of interacting particles, you have to put one particle per unit volume. Okay. Instead, in these descriptions, you go to the surface and you have to put essentially one particle per unit area. So that's the essential difference. It's a difference which goes, which plays around go, going in different direction, dimensions. And some singularities, like these black hole singularities, can go away when we use this new description. So there are now, uh, in the 90s, well, the beginning of this century, in the zeros, uh, many more people working on this area, around, I would say, uh, around two or 3,000 people in the world uh, working on string theory. And, um, well, I'm very hopeful that uh, one of them, uh, one of us, <laughs> will uh, find a solution to this problem and will find a way to also uh, make more close connection to experiment um, because, and this I think will be an important uh, problem that we need to solve before doing, making close connection to experiments because once we understand how to describe the space times, then we can try to understand how, this, uh, how the Big Bang started in our universe and we can make more experimental predictions. Um, well, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Maldesena. Uh, Professor Maldesena has graciously consented to answer questions from the audience for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, we are asking him to repeat the questions so yeah. that yeah. Uh, people can understand them. One, do you wish to identify? Uh, okay, yes. <coughs> Since, as I understand it, string theory in the broader sense includes these higher dimensional strings or membranes. Yes. Is there room also for lower dimensional ones, which I assume would be particles? Yes. Are they included in this framework? Yeah, yeah. Particles are, are also included and they can also exist. And depending on basically um, the, what has been understood is that uh, the concept of what is elementary, like we have this picture of building the theory out of elementary strings. But what's elementary can change. And in one description could be particles, in our description could be strings. For example, in this description I've talked about here, the, in one picture, so in the picture at the boundary, the elementary objects were particles, and, and so on for strings. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I didn't repeat the question. Sorry, forgot. Uh, the question was whether, since uh, we built, we included also uh, higher-dimensional objects like membranes, um, why could we also include lower-dimensional objects like particles? And the answer was that, actually, in this description, this is an example where we include lower-dimensional objects. Yes. Backing up just a little bit, you uh, distinguish between black holes and the Big Bang theory. Yes. But if you go back to the Big Bang theory, it shows a very high uh, collection of mass in a very small space, which yes. is the criterion for a black hole. Is the universe a black hole? Yeah. So the question was uh, that if you go back in time in the theory of the Big Bang, then in the beginning we had lots of mass in a very small region, and that was the criterion for having a black hole. And so the question was, is the universe a black hole? And the answer is uh, yes. So the answer is, in some sense, yes. So it's a singularity which is very similar. And maybe if I go back. Well, um, so if we go back here. So the universe is very similar to the interior of a black hole run backwards. Okay, So in a black hole, everything that uh, is here will eventually fo fall into a singularity. In the universe, it's the, the opposite. So everything that we see is coming from the singularity. And essentially, the laws of, um, of relativity are time reversal invariant. So actually, we could also think about uh, the inverse of a black hole, where things uh, are coming off the singularity. And um, so it, it's a slightly different kind of singularity than the one we have in, in the beginning of the universe, but it's closely analogous. And so it's uh, one of the hopes that uh, many in the field that we have in the field is that by understanding better here the, how to describe the interior of black holes, we could understand uh, space, also cosmological situations. Yes. Is there a present uh, theory for the jets which are emitted uh, from black holes? So the question is whether there is a theory uh, for the sheds that are coming from black holes and that there's been one such shed that has been uh, identified with electrons. Um, the answer is I don't know precisely. Uh, I don't know the precise answer. And the kinds of questions I'm, I'm focused on are questions that have to do more with this the evaporation of the black hole and so on. This kind of question about the sheds depends on what kind of matter was around when the black hole formed and exactly how it falls and so on. And so it's mainly uh, astrophysicists who study these kind of questions. Now, for these kind of questions, like the question of the sheds, um, these quantum effects are not very important. They are not important at all, and these are kinds of questions that can be answered with our current laws of physics. We don't, we don't need quantum gravity for this, but we expect that we don't need quantum gravity to describe those. So, uh, yes? Uh, speaking about black holes again, yes. I wasn't clear on why it was a scientific explanation for the difference in the radiation that was emitted from black holes and the contents that were being sucked into black holes. Yes. And, um, and I wasn't clear on the theory that black holes would lose energy if they are continuously um, drawing outside material. Why would it be necessary? Uh, the scientific law that they necessarily will 
Yes. Um, so the question was uh, to clarify a bit the uh, why was it a problem scientifically to have many different ways of forming a black hole and having only radiation coming out? That was one question. And the second question was, um, what was the second question? Well, I, I first answered the first question, then I remember the second question. So uh, this uh, first question, so if we, well, let me say it again. So suppose you um, take a book, okay? and you throw it to the fire. Then um, after, well, the book burns and something, heat comes out, okay? And so all the information that was in the book, you would think it's destroyed, okay? Something similar, so it's supposed to happen with the black hole. So you throw something in and the information comes out. But there is one difference. So in the case of the book, we believe that if you kept track of all the particles that make the book, then the radiation that comes out would be dependent on exactly what, how you, what, the, what book you threw in. So whether you threw Shakespeare or you threw uh, Dickinson or whatever. And, um, and so it's a question of principle. So practically, it's heat always that comes out to first approximation. But in principle, the laws of quantum mechanics would allow you to, in principle, calculate what comes out. In the case of black holes, uh, the second description, the quantum description, was not available. You could not describe what comes out. And it's completely uh, independent of, uh, of, what, of what went in. So that was an the result of an approximate description. And this gives a framework in order to calculate what comes out. So it describes the theory that, uh, so the theory of particles in the boundary could describe that, what comes out. Um, the second question was, um, I forgot. Why should black holes necessarily Oh, yes, yes. Why, why do they lose mass and why is it? Okay. So uh, when a black hole forms, um, it will attract all the matter that is around it. But once all the matter that is around it has fallen into the black hole and there is no more matter left around it, okay, suppose we have a black hole uh, where we have a star and then we have empty space around it, okay? So the, the star falls into the black hole. Um, and then all the matter has fallen in. And then after that, you will think, well, this black hole will exist forever and will conserve all the mass of the original star, all the mass that has fallen completely into the black hole, and that mass should still exist forever. Now that's not what is, happens according to laws of quantum mechanics. According to laws of quantum mechanics, you, the black hole will start emitting small amounts of radiation, and the black hole will start um, losing its mass. Okay? So that's, uh, that's what's uh, supposed to happen with black holes. Yes. Given the constraints of your research and string theory, I was wondering uh, how you define or by what process or criteria you would define those dimensions that we're going to understand a lot. The question was uh, how do we define the, the dimensions, right? Um, well, the dimensions are essentially defined by saying uh, in how many directions can a particle move. So a particle in, three, in two dimensions can move only in two possible different distinct directions, okay? Um, a particle in three dimensions can move in three, dimen three spatial dimensions. A particle in 10 dimensions can move in nine spatial dimensions, and then, of course, time. So that's how we describe it. So we, we have particles that can move in all these different directions. Is, oh, this wasn't clear, I see. Okay. <laughs> well, you see, it's, okay. Um, 
no, no, I should maybe, maybe I should try to say it again because re really this concept of extra dimensions is not, it's mathematically it's not very hard. It's just uh, very easy to mathematically introduce extra dimensions. What's uh, slightly harder is to explain why we don't observe them. Okay. And so in order to explain that, we need to explain why when we have something small, we don't see the extra dimensions. But just extra dimensions is just having particles that can move uh, in more different ways. So the easiest way to think, the way I think about it is by the analogy of going from two to three dimensions. So you can imagine particles living just in two dimensions, and then for imagining, uh, so if you imagine those particles, they would never imagine how it would be to have the three dimensions, or it would be hard to, to picture them. But uh, it would be something analogous. So thinking for us about extra dimensions, it would be something similar to these two-dimensional particles thinking about three dimensions. I don't know if... Uh, <laughs> is it any limitation in terms of chaotically or mapping in the sense that you need all these high-dimensional things of the interior to something simple in the boundary? How that mapping relates to the scale of which you define the boundary? Okay, so the, the question was, well, you had something complicated in the interior, like strings and brains and so on, uh, gravity, black holes, etc., and you had a simpler theory, on, well, apparently a simpler theory in the boundary. Um, and the question is, how big should the boundary be and, and well, the space the inside? You say let's yeah, 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 yeah. So this boundary, in order to be a simpler theory, like a theory of particles, should be very far away from the object you want to describe. So if you want to describe the black hole, right, this uh, boundary should be much, much bigger than the size of the black hole, and there shouldn't be any matter in the region, in the region between the black hole and your boundary. So that's essentially um, the, what you need, um, and. So the theory, the basic rules of this theory on the boundary become simpler when the boundary is very big, but of course the, the physics on the, the final physics is going to be the same. So we will be able to describe the same amount of physics. So, so maybe I'll elaborate a little more on that. Like something complicated like a string uh, in the interior will be some kind of string of particles in the boundary. So this string, these particles on the boundary will interact and will form strings that will move as if they were moving in one more dimension. Yes. Uh, last question. Here. Yes, I think. Yes. Have uh, gravity waves ever been detected, or is that a, uh, a theoretical construct? Yes. Um, not directly. So let me describe. Uh, well, the question was whether gravity waves have been uh, detected, or whether it's a theoretical construct. Um, by detecting a gravity wave directly, well, the answer is no, and they have not been detected directly. By directly, uh, we mean the following. So suppose you have uh, you ha suppose you have two objects floating in space, okay? And the way you detect the gravity wave directly is the following: you put two objects floating in space, and then you see for these objects to start moving around like this. So when they start moving around like this, it's because a wave has passed through that. Now this is a very hard experiment to do because when you put these objects, well, you can have light. Uh, shining on this object and then that can move it or you can have all kinds of things moving the objects which are not gravity waves. 
Now, this, this experiment is currently uh, being, uh, being done, and there are detectors. That, so there, there are people hanging two masses. Uh, I think it's in Carolina. If, is it, well, anyway, somewhere in the south. Um, they are uh, doing this experiment, and they will be able to see probably gravitational waves. However, they have been seen indirectly in this uh, other way. So suppose you had these two things. So suppose you had two stars in the galaxy, in, in the galaxy, two neutron stars, very compact, small, and very heavy stars. Um, and these stars are going around each other. Okay. Now, uh, and people have uh, found these stars. So the gravity group here in Princeton found two stars going around each other like this. And um, and then, since these stars are moving, so this is similar to the electron I talked about in the beginning that is moving and will emit energy, will emit gravitational waves. Now, since it's, a, since it's a mass that is moving, any moving mass will emit gravitational waves. In particular, these neutron stars will emit gravitational waves, and they will lose energy, and they will start approaching each other. And as they approach each other, they will move faster and faster. And this is what has been detected. So uh, people saw these uh, neutron stars. They saw how they approach each other and so on. And the rate at which it approached agrees perfectly with the calculations that you do on the basis uh, on this, of, of this theory. So if you calculate the energy that would be lost to gravitational waves, uh, that's some number you can calculate. You go, you measure the number, and it agrees perfectly. So this is an indirect way of, of seeing the gravitational waves. Juan, thank you very much. Uh, before Gary <laughs> Margaret wants to take me down. Or asking, or asking you to uh, applaud once more for Juan. I want to invite everyone in the room, as well as those who are in our simulcast sites, uh, to come to the reception on the lowest level of the Frist Campus Center. That, as you know, is the old Palmer Physics Building. One goes down this quadrangle and works one's way down to B floor to a multi-purpose room. There will be balloons and graduate students showing you the way. <laughs> but please come for refreshments and a chance to talk more with Juan. Thank you again, Juan.